Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening, everyone. I'm Paul Edwards, and welcome to Tuesday Topics. I am really looking forward to tonight's program. Uh, I have known both of the folks who are my guests tonight as panelists, for a fairly long time, in in one case an unconscionably long time for both of us. Uh, but it gives me great pleasure to welcome Lee Nasahi, who is Executive Director of the VisionServe Alliance. Welcome, Lee. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. Excellent. And there is a kind of a state equivalent of the VisionServe Alliance, but that also cooperates a lot with the VisionServe Alliance, called the Florida Agencies Serving the Blind, or FASB, and that organization is headed by Ellie Dupree, who is also with us. Ellie, good evening. Good evening. Excellent. So glad to have you both here. So let's go from little to big. Um, Ellie, tell us about FASB and what it does and who's members and what you guys do. Okay. Um Okay, well, the Florida Agencies Serving the Blind is a consortium of 17 private nonprofit agencies around the state that provide direct services to people who are blind or visually impaired. Uh, it's been around for quite a while, but we, we kind of shortened our name a few years ago. We did a little bit of rebranding, and we started to put together a strategic plan so we're we're functioning at a fairly high level, and currently during the COVID crisis, we actually meet once a week with ourselves, and once a week with the director of the Division of Blind Services. So we've really formed a very tight knit group, and I think one of the pieces of it that I like the best is the amount of trust we've developed with each other, which I think is is such a great step to reach in any organization when, when the people who are belong to it have that trust where they can make mistakes and share their joys and sorrows or their triumphs and, and uh, defeats. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and we can grow together and, and help each other. And so uh, I feel very positive about the Florida Agency Serving the Blind and the stuff that we're doing. Excellent. Miss Lee, tell us about VisionServe Alliance. Okay. So we're, we're fairly similar to FASB, um, of which I was a member for 20 years myself. Served in a very proud capacity as its president at one point. Um, I think that's when I got to know you the best, Paul, during those, it is. those tough years. Those stormy <laughs> little days. Yes, they were. <laughs> But all's well that ends well. Yeah. Um, so we're a leadership collective of about 125 voting organizational members, all of whom are 501c3s, just like Vision Serve Alliances, who have as its primary mission some service or products to people who are blind, have low vision, or other visual impairments. We also have some other um, associate members who don't vote, like ATIA, which overlaps with our mission, but their primary focus is not blindness, 
And then we also have individual advocates and retirees who can belong. And the purpose of Vision Serve Alliance is first and foremost to bring this tremendous pool of talents and treasure and time, the leadership in our field together to work on things that we, we, we just can't accomplish individually, right? There's policy work and awareness work and um, just innovative thinking um, that is benefited by us working together, thinking together, talking together. And then the other part of our mission is to support and nourish that leadership, leadership development, training, not just for existing uh, executives, but also their C-suites and up and coming leaders, emerging leaders. Now, Vision Serve Alliance has been around for a long time, though not always under that name, right? Oh, right. We used to have this really lovely name. <laughs> um, the National Council of Private Agencies for the Blind and Visually Impaired, NCPABVI, uh, which was some people referred to as InkPav. It was. It, it really didn't work. And at, but it was. But it was around for a long time. It was around I mean, for a long time, and the yeah. organization worked. It was founded, as I understand it, um, as a response uh, to NCSAB and CSABR, the state agency councils. Mm -hmm. The private agency said, "Hey, we need something like that." And so um, a couple of handful of leaders back then came together and said, let's create this thing, wrote the bylaws, started meeting. Um, there was a lot of whining, I understand, in the initial days, <laughs> W-H-I-N-ing and W-I-N-I-N-G. Yes, both go together. <laughs> they do. Um, and then ultimately, and, and it was just volunteer and and there's still some pretty amazing things happened. Um, you know, some of the greats were part of that founding. And um, then ultimately, they, those leaders decided that in order for us to really get things done, we needed to have some paid staff, just like we made that decision for FASB. So um, it when you decided to have paid staff, that was when you kind of rebranded and became VisionServe as well, or? Well, um, Roxanne Maros was the first right. CEO hired, and under her leadership, she recognized that we we could benefit from a, a better brand and, and name. And so many of us participated, and I know Ellie was very involved in that. I was, too. We hired a firm and uh, went through a lot of discussions and, um, thinking about it, and I just love Vision Serve Alliance. I think it's a great, a great name. It is who we I, are. I actually like it too. So, Vision Serve Alliance, though, has recently, at least to a degree, um, changed its goals. I, I, I know you were primarily working on agency stuff before and doing conferences every year, mm -hmm. um, but last November you held an interesting conference in Atlanta. Tell us about that. Yeah, we did. Well, so I'm going to just mention a couple other things before I get there. So, yes, I mean, Vision Serve Alliance has already accomplished a lot of wonderful things, and we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, but standing on that foundation, we did want to do more. 
we want to have, first of all, more members and uh, broaden the conversation to include not just members, but everyone involved in this field, because the more the merrier, uh, the more ideas, the, the richer the solutions, and, um, and, and the leadership of VisionServe Alliance is not me. I'm, I see myself more as a facilitator and a convener. Um, the leadership are our members. And so how do we harvest all these great experiences and knowledge and passion that exist amongst our members? And so in one of our uh, very first board members that I, I was part of as in this new role, um, we were talking about this. How do we make a statement? How do we really change things up? And one of our board members suggested we have our fall conference um, be convened as an open space technology conference, which some would call an unconference. And essentially what happened is, well, first of all, we invited in a, in a very strong way, we really reached out to invite non-members of Vision Serve Alliance, and, and that really hadn't happened before. Um, I wrote a grant, the, the Gibney Family Foundation supported that conference and enabled us to offer uh, free tuition or registration fees to non-members. So we, we had quite a few. Um, very thankful to the, the Gibney Family Foundation. Um, and the format was unique in that we, the agenda was just like, what are all the great ideas we can think about together to really improve, enhance, increase the opportunities and the quality of life for people with blindness and low vision over the next five years? That was it. That was the agenda. And the very first morning, we invited every participant to suggest a topic for a breakout session. They had to be willing to facilitate that session if they suggested it. And we ended up with 80 different breakout sessions over the next two days. And it was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, not all of them worked, but the overwhelming majority did. We had volunteers to take notes and we compiled um, the proceedings into a little booklet that we shared with everyone afterwards. And some of those groups continued to meet afterwards. It really broke down the barriers. It was like the speed to intimacy amongst our membership was really amazing in this format. But it led your board to take some interesting decisions, for instance, to become more involved in policy than you had. Absolutely. We got, we had three breakout sessions, not one, on, on policy, on public policy. And Vision Serve Alliance received a mandate from the membership that we coordinate public policy efforts. And I think the dream is that one day we may have a unified public policy agenda. Um, it's, it's not within reach at this point, but the first steps towards that is all of us talking and sharing and starting to build trust and understanding. We can agree to disagree but at least let's be willing to talk about our issues and, and get to understand why we have different uh, positions on it. So we formed the National Policy Collaborative and all of the national organizations in the field are members of that. The first couple of meetings were with the chief executives and policy directors and now it's pretty much policy staff. 
Um, but we, we anticipate there will be meetings when it's important for us to have the chief executives there too to talk through. And I'd say the first few meetings, it's been tougher because it's all Zoom now. And, yes. um, you know, I really miss not being able to have dinner and happy hour with everyone because those things help. Well, I think it was one of the reasons why the, the, the Florida Rehab Council for the Blind was as successful as it was and why. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> why, why there was as much cooperation as there was. I mean, one of the. One of the things that I think both you and Ellie would say is that is that all of the blindness folks in Florida uh, were prepared to collaborate if we needed to on issues, and and yeah. there was there was no fighting, there just wasn't, and 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 that's that is so rare in our country, and 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 such yeah. a blessing. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful model. I, I still yeah. hold up Florida. Um, there's so many great things that happen and we can accomplish so much more together. Um, and, and we're finding through this collaborative that there, there are in fact quite a few issues that there's very little, if any disagreement and we're now, gonna get a lot more accomplished. Is NFB prepared to participate on those calls? Oh, they're, they're there every, every month. Yeah. Excellent. That is so cool. Yeah. Miss Ellie. Um, I'll let you start, but then I'm going to ask Lee about it as well. So FASB is, is moving along and doing all of its stuff, and then suddenly COVID comes along. Tell me how that impacted you guys. Wow. Well, it, um, I think it threw us all into a complete uproar. I mean, from one month to the next, we had to completely reinvent an entire service delivery model that uh, respected social distancing or actually complete isolation at that time. And, and still we wanted to, to provide services to people that we were already providing services to and services to new people. And, and of course, there's all kinds of technological challenges. Uh, a lot of people live in places where they don't have access to a computer or to the internet. Um, there's a lot of people who don't know how to use any uh, systems like that. And so um, that's why I said earlier, I said, I'm so glad I wasn't running an agency when COVID came out because it was, it was a 24 seven challenge oh, and yeah. people became completely exhausted, but they, they soldiered through it. I mean, it, it was just amazing how how quickly uh, people learned about Zoom. They uh, they collaborated not only amongst themselves here in Florida, but with Mississippi State University and with other organizations around the country. Anybody who already had anybody already had something going uh, that could be turned into a. Uh, a presentation or into a, some kind of a course or some kind of a support group. Um, even, even to find games and, and, and recreational and, and fun stuff to do to, to, re, to reduce the isolation and the, the stress that was going on. What proportion do you think of the blind folks in Florida um, who could have participated chose to? Well, it depends on what age group you're talking about. 
so if you're if you're talking about people who are who have parents okay the age group of people have parents um there was a certain point where most of those people burned out mm-hmm. they just couldn't take any more video and so you you saw quite a drop off um not everywhere some some uh, agencies had a different re- um experience with that but for the most part the uh, participation started to dwindle as we got toward the summer and um families just felt we need to give our kids a break we need to get them out of this this constant uh time period in front of a screen and um and I, and I think there was a tremendous amount of difficulty for for parents on the other hand this is the first time that some parents ever really knew what their children were learning that's right and so all of a sudden uh i think we made a lot of breakthroughs in in the parents saying i didn't know my kid knew how to do that I guess I can let them run the microwave or do this or that around the house and and the kids were making uh making food and they were doing all kinds of interesting projects with the computer they're getting involved in book discussions with the actual author of the book and so um for some parents it was a a complete uh revelation and and a, a joyous moment of discovering their child with all of these skills that they previously really, they had no idea what had been going on all this time in in the different classes but but the, so there were different kinds of reactions at different parts there also um for all the difficulty with technology in that age group and um also in in the rural communities there were people who never would have been seen for any kind of services who suddenly were participating regularly so there were a lot of pluses to what happened with covid so much of services to blind people though and this is uh, again for Ellie and then what we're going to talk to you about um how how the pandemic impacted you guys but um so many services services for blind people are kind of hands on how do you get around that during a pandemic well that is one of the main issues is how do you how do you teach somebody to do something when you're not sitting next to them mhm and and in the case of of the kids again i mean they had their parents sitting next to them mhm and so there was that i i think for a lot of people who were who were low vision they were able to to still continue to learn because they could see what was going on but i think that um so anything that involved talking was working well but things that involved actually um hands on a page of braille yeah things like that i think if, if you didn't have the beginnings of braille yet i think it was very hard yeah very hard All right. So so Lee you're bopping along. You've just had this wonderfully successful conference in November. You've got a booklet all ready to fly and COVID happens. What did you do? Yeah, it was it required a a complete pivot just like all of our membership organizations. 
And um, for Vision Serve, we made the decision that we were only going initially only going to focus on what our member organizations needed to move forward and continue serving um, its clients, its, its consumers. And so I reached out immediately to as many members as I could get on the phone. We did a survey. We just really tried to hear from them, what, what are you doing? What are your biggest needs? And uh, one of the suggestions was that we conduct a weekly call, Zoom call, um, directed primarily at program directors of Vision Rehabilitation Services to talk about, to share with each other, what are you doing about this? How are you going to serve people? Um, and we continue those weekly calls. We've had lots of different topics. Um, we have something like 250 people registered for these calls, um, all, all people in service. Um, we don't necessarily have that many on, on every call, but it's, it's been a nice community that has grown out of this. We've asked people to share their resources when it was time to partially reopen or reopen. If you have a plan, would, would you mind sharing that with other members? And many did. Um, there is still debate among the provision of remote services, as I'm sure everyone is aware. Um, uh, you know, some things, O&M, it's, it's much harder to figure out how you're going to do that remotely. Um, as Ellie said, if you don't have a, at least a beginning in Braille, it's tough too. But, and it's not ideal in many of the other services that our members provide. But here's the thing, at least for a good number of months, either our member organizations figured out how to do this virtually or no service was provided. Right. And, and, and that was just not acceptable, mm -hmm. uh, especially for children. Oh, my gosh, we're going to let a quarter of their lives go by. So um, just so proud of the innovations and the solutions that all of our members have come up with and the willingness to share that and build on each other's strengths. And this is something – how long have we been talking about remote, the delivery of remote services in this field? Several decades? Right. Uh, and we need to do it because we're still at best serving 5% of the need. It's not ideal. It's not for everyone. But it is another tool for the toolbox for us and, to, in my opinion anyway, right. extend the reach. Yeah. And can we package some of those products? Pro products I'll learn to speak and make them available as as say podcasts that that we can encourage blind people to download uh, possibly yeah yeah working closely the per, the the organization that has collected um, has done the best job of collecting all those ideas is um, MSU Sylvia Perez has led that right today. so um, but yes we we can do that I'll probably have to have her on the program sometime oh, soon, yeah. another old friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Ellie, in, in looking at reports from uh, Director Doyle from the Division of Blind Services, he says that uh, virtually all of the agencies have met all of their contract requirements during COVID. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And, and I think, like, he was talking about the kind of effort that was put out, 
um, I mean, people were, agencies were packing up their vans and bringing the materials to every single house, right. putting it on the porch or outside the door, calling up the resident and saying, open your door, your stuff is there. And, and kids were making lunches for the family. Yeah, and, and I know people that, didn't have food either. I mean, initially yep. it was an issue of food, not an issue and, of learning. And I know that, um, and I know that in some cases, um, agencies were actually leaving laptop computers there, um, and then the kids would take them. In, yeah, computer, and the teacher was in the car outside. Right, they would have the class remotely. And the laptop computer would come back onto the porch and the teacher would go inside and the teacher would run up and wipe and clean it and bring it back in the car. And and take it to the next house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a pretty amazing exercise. So let's talk about um, a couple of, of issues that I'd like to talk about. Um, I think we're sort of at a crossroads now. Um, I'm sure both of you know that uh, NLS has now actually started uh, their Braille e-reader trials. So the first of the two machines that they're prototyping is actually out with consumers. Uh, and I think there are probably 100 or 150 machines um, that NLS has, has now given out. And potentially, um, and really, these these machines are going to be uh, essentially given to folks for nothing. Um, wow, I which, did not know that. Yeah. Um, but the question is, what do we do and, and how do we do it um, to encourage more people to learn Braille well enough to make these machines useful? And, and, and how can we build cooperation that will enable that kind of thing to happen? So I'll, I'll start with Lee and then let Ellie answer. Oh, boy, I was afraid you were going to do that. That's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I think the largest group of, of the population that we have to serve who could benefit from, benefit from that are, are probably the least likely to do it, and that are, are older adults. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. It really will take... Um, an effort of, of reframing within education. Right. But I, I love this subject and would love to convene some national conversations about it. Uh, Vision Serve Alliance would be happy to help in that. You know, I, I, I need to, I need to make it clear that I'm president of the Braille Revival League nationally. And, and I'm really concerned about this because it has such a potential for, for significantly changing um, the the degree to which blind people can can afford to get fully involved with braille um, when when this project is fully implemented, I mean, you know, we're going to have we're going to have probably two hundred and fifty of these devices out in the world by the end of the year, mm -hmm. um, and but but by I don't know two three years from now. We, we have the potential of one being available to any blind person who can demonstrate a capacity to benefit from it. Yeah, well, that's a good incentive. But I think right. we need to put together a, an innovative think tank and really think outside the box. What can yep. we do? Yep, 
I, I would I would love to be a part of that. Um, One of the things that I think is interesting about it, but I need to know a little more information, the fact that this is a Braille e-reader mm-hmm. suggests to me that you have basically some kind of a of a Braille panel that you're able, that's refreshable. It's a 20-cell Braille display. Well, the beautiful thing about that is that it's not paper. You no. Can't, you can't squish those dots down. No. Part of the problem, though, is that it, it, is that we're we're at least potentially faced with these e-readers are going to come along, and and I think potentially, you know, we're already seeing Braille producers disappearing left, right, and center. Associated Services for the Blind just shut down, um, and and I'm not sure how long we're going to have mass-produced hard copy Braille books. Yeah, that could happen. Yeah, oh, that could happen. And, and and that's part of the scary part because unless un, unless we can bring people up to speed on devices like these, um, there, there's a there's a real danger that that Braille as a as a practical entity will will die with us old people who still use it a lot. Yeah, I hope. And so. that'd be a, that would be a well, scary scary what, thing. What happened? Happen. What happened when the original? Um, um, Braille notebooks showed up. What did the users end up doing? They were did too they expensive. Them? I mean, that, that's the problem. They were too expensive. I mean, remember, as a population, blind people are, are, are poorer than any other minority group in, in the country. So they can't afford Braille displays. No, but, but, they, but the, the people who did get Braille display, Braille notes, right. where right. they had a short, a short, uh, Braille display, and they could input Braille and also read Braille. What percentage of those people? And sometimes they even had the. They also had the capacity to speak out, right? Have right. So what? What was the result of that? Did those people stop reading Braille that came on paper or in books or? Uh, I think I think they stopped reading as much Braille because Braille's pretty bulky. It's hard to get delivered by the post office and so on. So I don't. I, I think that there were that there were probably a lot of people who had Braille note takers who didn't read Braille as much, but they still liked occasionally to have a, a hard copy Braille book on their lap. So it was interesting. Anyway, that's that's something I would really a, like to like to see us work thing, on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I also wonder if if the if the device it, are the braille dots visible to a person with remaining vision? And having a clue, them? having and, a clue. And the other thing is, um, you know, I, I don't. Running, I don't think so. I, I would doubt it. Okay. Well, that might be a mistake. I think that would be an interesting conversation. And the other thing I would wonder is, is there speech associated with the... There is not. Because, you know, when you have, when you're doing learning, but the multi-sensory experience is, enhances the learning. If you're, if you're hearing and reading at the same time, it could very well right. help. I mean, it's 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 interesting. The Braille e-reader is a is a very very narrowly focused device, um, though it can connect by Bluetooth to an iPhone or an 
um, or other devices uh, and therefore can be used as a braille display so that speech can be involved for there there is no speech built into it and the the only books that you can read are braille books our books are already in braille you mean yes or or potentially uh, electronic books i mean there's no reason why bookshare books in braille couldn't be read though they can't at the moment um but it's it's primarily a reader. That's what it's primary. Then there's no ability to take notes with the device by itself. Yeah, I, who, who was the who was the focus group for this development? No, I mean it's 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 being provided by the National Library Service, the Library of Congress. So there. Yeah, did they talk to anybody? Oh yeah. So there was a focus group of some kind that informed them as to what should be done well I, I i think they were pretty clear about what they were prepared to do and what they weren't okay so miss lee mm -hmm. where where did your podcast come from well it was born out of covid and needing to find new ways of communicating uh with our community and so and i have a young staff member who is the manager of digital operations. He got his degree in digital marketing and communications. And um, he really lives and breathes all of these new mediums that we use, unlike moi. Or moi. And has to be, um, you know, sort of prodded to do these things. But it's been great. And, um, you know, just a, another way for us to have these conversations, share ideas, and get to know each other better. Mm -hmm. Tell us what the podcast is called. It's called The Voices of Vision Leaders. And uh, we have been reaching out to uh, CEOs or chief executives or board members of our member organizations, national organizations, um, and, and lots of just interesting people on different subjects. And, um, yeah, it's been fun. And it's about 20 minutes? Yeah, per... they're, short. They're, yeah. they're short, really easy to listen to. <laughs> and, Ellie, you guys operate a blog, do you not? Well, to some extent, we do. Um, it, it's, it's hit and miss. It, Sometimes it's every week, and sometimes it's a few months in passing before the next one shows up. But it's been fun. And, and where can folks find that if they want to? If they want to be a, a member of a, a recipient, of, I mean, a subject of the blog? Not a subject of, but to, to, to read them. <laughs> oh, if they want to read them, they can go to beyondvisionloss.org forward slash blog excellent excellent so the future but if they want to be the subject of one they could contact me as well, well <laughs> i don't want to be a subject or, 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 or suggest a subject well I'm yes i could that too. we could suggest a subject we could do a blog on this whole braille issue well that's good i would be interested in that actually yeah so the future um, first, let me ask you guys a couple of hard questions. Um, has, has COVID affected fundraising for your agencies? 
Well, that's that's one of the reasons that um, that we've been meeting on a weekly basis in Florida, and we also meet on a weekly basis with the director of the Division of Blind Services. And I have to say that the Division of Blind Services has been a fantastic partner to the agencies in this entire pivoting. I think that was the best word that, that uh, Lee was using for that situation. Right. And um, uh, Robert Doyle is the director of Division of Blind Services in the state of Florida. And um, he had sort of a couple of themes that he struck with us from the very beginning. And one was that he absolutely did not want to lose any of these agencies to the effects of the crisis. And the other was that he wanted a good faith effort. So for the first uh, three months, March, April, and May, well, not May, March and April, he actually did not require us to meet any of the, of the contract um, uh, measurements in order to get paid. So he waived all of the, uh, the uh, remedies that could have been imposed for not make, meeting our numbers. And then starting in May, because we'd had time to kind of get our feet on the ground, he took that away. And, and like he reported, most agencies came very close or they exceeded dramatically right. the um, contractual requirements that they had to make. Yep. Excellent. Uh, Lee, are, are your agencies in trouble as well? Um, well, I, I will say that the pandemic has definitely affected revenue generation in general. Um, some organizations have actually done very well through this, um, particularly those organizations that are manufacturing producing organizations right. involved in services or uh, the, the the creation of PPE um, and a lot of our or member organizations do that and so they're in terms of financially they're doing very well um, others not so much you know it kind of depends on what your product line is I we've heard a lot of organizations outside of the state of Florida that are not faring as well with uh, their their contracts. Most of them don't have contracts per se. They it's just reimbursement if they get any from their states, and that's been a little dicier. Um, fundraising has been affected, but you know what? I'll say some have done very well, and some not so well. So it is my guess, um, based on the conversations and feedback we've been getting, that 25% of our organizations are in trouble financially. I, I, that's not to say that they're going to for sure go out of business. And it's not just about money, Paul. You know, if you were an organization that struggled um, with, with governance, with structure, yep. with diversity of revenue, it's been exacerbated by this pandemic. Right. Now's not the time to try to figure out how to fix all that. <laughs> right. So um, yeah, there are some organizations that are in trouble and I, I, we're trying to help, and we're also suggesting, you know what, if there's any hint that your organization is not going to survive the next 12 to 18 months, will you please reach out to neighboring organizations to start talking about merging? merging? It's not taboo. What matters most is that the mission survive. 
Right. Yeah. So we should say, just so everybody understands, that that a pretty substantial proportion of the revenue, and, and it varies in terms of percentages in Florida, um, uh, of the revenue of the, the agencies that are in Ellie's purview, the 17 agencies, um, is received from contracts that are entered into with the Division of Blind Services. Um, Ellie, would you say that that an average might be about 70% of the revenue? I would actually say the average is closer to 50%. There are okay. some agencies that are higher, but some agencies are lower. But the, yep. the, real, the real thing there is, I think about, I'm starting to think about this more and more, about what's going on, because, of course, the traditional model has been get some of your money from the Division of Blind Services in a contract where you have to meet the contract, and then you go out to your, the United Way or to foundations and to individual people of relative wealth or people who are just good people who have a little bit of, of right. income that they can contribute. And the fact is that the uh, number of individuals who can give has shrunk by about 20%. Right. But we also have a situation of policy in this country. And I know this is really um, Lee's bailiwick, but I just want to introduce it for a moment because the United States has an interest in the success of people with disabilities. And there is no policy that actually supports that strategic uh, fact. And, we, and in fact, the way taxes and the way investments and the way um, money is distributed to the states by the U.S. government in no way is being done strategically. And so that's part of the reason that agencies are suffering. It's, it's not their fault. They're, they're, they're working in communities that are poor. Yeah, course, and of course those communities need to have services, and a lot of times they're not only poor, but they have terrible health services, and so right. they, they've been hit by double and triple whammies, and um, and they the community cannot support an agency to serve them, but they need it, yep. and so you have you have complete maldistribution of resources and and an ineffective amount of resources, no matter what even though it would be so much better for this country if people with disabilities really reached their potential. Lee? Yeah, boy, I, I echo that. And, um, you know, it's, it is in the best interest of all of us to make that investment, but it always seems out of reach. And especially now, um, we saw it with some of the suggestions like, oh, well, now we're in crisis. Let's not worry about making sure that people with blindness get what they need. You know, students. And and it's, it's a and scary the thought. System, absolutely. Yeah. Outrageous. So yeah. let's, let's talk about the other elephant in the room, and, and that is the statistics that suggest that the number of seniors who will become blind over the next 10 to 20 years is huge. Um, people talk about the number of seniors with visual impairments um, sufficient enough for them to require services will double over the next 15 or 20 years. Um, but for the most part, 
the, the funding that's been available to provide services for them um, hasn't changed very much uh, over the past few years. And for the most part, much of the cost of providing services to those populations now resides with the agencies themselves. Um, right. So what do we do about that, Ms. Lee? Well, um, gratefully, a wonderful woman named Chris Rogers contacted me early in uh, my tenure as the chief executive of VisionServe Alliance to ask if VisionServe would consider uh, picking up where AFB was going to leave off with the agenda for the 21st century for aging and vision loss. Admittedly, I didn't have a deep understanding or passion for this population at that point, but I thought it's it's the it's a good fit for Vision Serve because we want to build um, networking leadership, collaboration, and that was the the model. So we entered into it, um, and over that that first the course of the first year, working with some amazing people who are just so passionate and so much more knowledgeable about this than me, including Ellie, including some of the listeners on, on the phone. Um, I'll give a shout out to Betsy Grenovich, who's been one of our, our volunteers and supporters in this effort. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had an epiphany that what in the world, what is going on? This is far and away the largest segment of the people we serve and the least amount of resources and attention. And there's not one single, not one single organization in this country that is exclusively focused on aging and vision loss. How is that possible? Mm -hmm. There well, is something well, wrong. Well, well, there is one, you know. What? Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it is a, a special interest affiliate of ACBs. Oh, yeah. Well, we work with them, too. But I know I, you do. Yes, but not one, and, and I guess they do count as that. I'm thinking as a nonprofit organization. I, I, I get it. Not, yeah. not, a, not a national lobbying organization, yeah. Not, a, yeah. not, a, not even a state lobbying organization. You'd think right. there might be room for one of those in Florida. Yeah, exactly. So within about we the next. We want to change that through our right. and Vision Loss National Coalition. We have 25 plus organizational members of 50 intense. Um, individual volunteers, and um, we have um, been working all summer with our steering committee. We've been kind of quiet for the full coalition, but the steering committee has been deeply immersed in articulating our theory of change for aging and vision loss and a three-year strategic plan that VisionServe hopes to coordinate and get funded um, that will will really help. And, and our focus, Paul, initially is reframing aging and vision loss and mm -hmm. thinking outside of the box. It's really co-opting, immersing, collaborating with the aging and allied health networks um, to further their, their understanding and their ability to work with people who are blind and visually impaired. And think, speaking of thinking out of the box, I don't know how much you can talk about this, Ellie, but I, I, I know that you're talking about um, getting involved uh, with a with another organization in Florida to train a particular group of folks. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I can. And uh, this is a constantly evolving discussion. But um, 
we, uh, the Florida Agency Serving the Blind, wants to hold a vision summit. Uh, we wanted to hold it this year, twice, but both times we had to it. So now we're hoping to hold it next year. And, and what really happened was we've had Still vision coming. Summit. Still coming. You never know. Yeah. But it, it will happen one of these days. <laughs> the, uh, we've had vision summits in the past, and we stopped having them about five years ago because we kind of ran out of out of relevance, I guess is the best way to put it. And and basically, all of our friends who, who are involved in one way or another, and that includes you, Paul, and it includes ACB, right. and it includes NFB in Florida, and it includes right. um, other organizations – we just plain we're talking to each other anymore. We we originally yeah. hoped to be talking to legislators, and then the way the legislature was was um, structurally organized changed, and we couldn't do that so well. So we stopped doing it so we could rethink it. And um, one of the things we 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 realized was that a big big network of organizations that we were not talking with at all in all all places in Florida, which is a retirement. Mecca was the people in the aging network. And so we decided that we would reach out to the aging network and have that and, and try and build enough of a relationship that they would come to our summit. And that's what we are doing now. And um, we actually have a, like a first adopter large organization in Florida that um, is a network of home health care providers. It is a health care providing organization. It's called Healthcare Assistance. And uh, it's actually a national organization, but they have a big presence in Florida. And we're hoping to draw them into, well, they, they want to come to the summit, and we're going to have a conversation. And I, I thank Lee for, for setting the tone with, with the summit, with the um, Vision Serve Alliance meeting that was held in Atlanta last November that we've been talking about. So, um, Florida Agency Serving the Blind, the uh, ACVREP, the Academy for Certification of Vision and Rehabilitation and Education Professionals, plus Mississippi State University, we are putting on this summit uh, with the generous help of the Gibney Foundation. And, and it's now... Supposed to be May seventh, is it next year? Uh, well, you're close. It's actually uh, May twenty fourth. <laughs> Not very. <laughs> right month. Right month. Right month. <laughs> and so um, we want to sit down with people and say, "You basically, we want to say you serve more older blind people than we do." That's right. And there are two million older blind people in the state of Florida. And I know that that is a, a number that is far greater than most people talk about, but I am going to defend it. Yep. There was a, a nine-year longitudinal study of Medicare recipients, so people 65 and over, done by Duke University. Now it's probably 12 years ago, maybe even a little bit more. And they realized that in that population – well, you can ask, what percent of people in that population had one or more of the aging-related vision loss? At least conditions? one. At least yeah. one or more. What percent do you think have that situation going on? Well, I, I think... Maybe you know the answer. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, but I'd guess 60. 
Uh, they came up with 50%. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that the people are having any trouble at this moment seeing. Right. But they have gotten some very tough news from their ophthalmologist. Right. And so I say that they are part of the population that needs some degree of interaction with our agencies. So we don't want them. We don't want them to give up their home because right. they think that someday they ha- we want them to have all the information they need to make the decisions that they need to make and all the training that they need at whatever point they need it. So one of the things, Lee, that I think you took from Florida to to national is an effort that's kind of related this to, to this involving ophthalmologists. You want to talk about that? Yeah, actually, it did start in Florida. Um, we have an electronic referral process called Vision Refer. And it began in Florida at, in response to an ophthalmologist that we worked with, who we worked with at White House Central Florida, saying, you know, I work with a large eye care practice, and he was involved with the Florida Society of Ophthalmology. There are many large practices and there's many lighthouses and we can't keep straight who serves what county. Um, there needs to be an easy button for us to make referrals and then we would probably make more. And I thought, okay. Went back and talked to my staff at Lighthouse Works, a great technology team, and they came up with a very simple ticketing system that was just based on a, on a person's address that would automatically, because of Florida, we have almost completely mutually exclusive territories that we serve. Right. And so it was pretty easy for them to develop the model, went to ASB, said, are you guys interested in this? And we created this um, for the state of Florida. And then Roxanne Maros at Vision Serve Alliance um, heard Ellie or I talking about it and said, wow, this, what can we take this national? Can this become a vision serve prod- project? So we collaborated and transitioned. Ellie has still been a phenomenal leader in moving this project forward. Florida still is uh, our, our, the biggest user of it. Um, but we have taken it nationally. and We have about 50 organizations using it now. And, and, it, and so essentially what happens is there's an app that, that is given to offices? That's right. I mean, first of all, um, somebody has to, usually it's the lighthouse or the community-based organization in the area that has to recruit the doctors to use it and explain how to. But it's pretty simple. Um, they can use it on any electronic device, and it just facilitates a very simple form for them to complete electronically, and then it will go automatically to the to the organization that serves that area. Um, it is a little more complicated now because we do have some areas where there's not mutually exclusive territories, but then we work out agreements with the service providers. Um, it's a nice case management system because information can be given right away, non-client identifying information only between the doctor, only the doctor and the service provider see everything they need. VisionServe Alliance can see that a transaction has happened without the client identifying information. So it's completely HIPAA compliant, but we can make sure that if a referral is made, 
that someone responds to it, that an organization has picked it up and follows up. And then the, the organization can com communicate back and forth with the doctor too. So, well, and, um, and like, can also express appreciation and maybe encourage absolutely. it to be used more. Because yeah. I, I think we're all convinced that we don't get nearly as many referrals as we should from ophthalmologists to people who could use our services, yeah? Right. Oh, gosh, yeah. Unfortunately, there's still a big learning or understanding or philosophy curve there. But for those who do understand it and want to do this, this makes it super easy for them. Mr. Rick, we're getting ready to open it up, sir. Um, so, uh, Miss Ellie, any, any final thing before we open it up to questions that you'd like to say? Um, well, I think the future is going to be a very exciting place to be. Yep. I think there are terrific conversations going on in, in very, um, uh, cross, cross, uh, different, different kinds of organizations are starting to have very great conversations. And I feel very optimistic about the future and about some of the, um, changes that we can make that will have dramatic impact. I'm, I'm very positive. Excellent. Mr. Rick? We've got Anicio here, Paul. Mr. Correa, how are you, sir? Good, good. Thank you. I, I'm calling for two, two, two quick, quick things. One, I, I couldn't, you know, when I read on the email that these two, my two favorite people in the blindness field were going to be on, I had to come and, and say hello to them. Hi, Anicio. Hello. Hello, Anicio. <laughs> this, this is a very small world. But the, on a more serious vein, um, I mean, I, I am excited about hearing all these um, dreams and hopes and aspirations and work that is, is being done to, to, as a result of, of COVID. One of the things I have not heard, and I, I think we cannot forget i know it's been a struggle and it will continue to be but if unless we work at it it will never happen is third-party reimbursement i really uh -huh. think because when ali when you talk about this home health program that obviously obviously offers a lot of service to older people they are reimbursed by medicare and the moment they see that we are not they're going to have i mean they're going to send us referrals for sure i'm sure which is a, it's a, certainly a, a good thing, but the system is not ready to, to, to serve them without a significant additional funding. So that's so which, yeah. which that's, of you guys would like to start on that issue? Me, I would like to start. Good. Go, myself. Okay. I, first of all, I totally agree with you. And uh, I think that the, the issue is even broader than third party. Tell, tell I, folks what, what it really is, though, because there, there are going to be a lot of folks for whom this is gobbledygook. Okay. Medicare. Medicare does not pay orientation mobility specialists, vision rehabilitation therapists. It might pay a low vision therapist if it's an, an occupational therapist doing it. Uh, it does not pay for assistive technology. It doesn't even pay for magnification or, or low vision aids or for it, any it of that not. stuff. Right. So that's what I was kind of alluding to when I was speaking earlier, is that, that the United States does not treat this strategic opportunity and strategic imperative 
of this vast number of people who are visually impaired who need to be able to continue to lead their lives. There's no planning. There's no national planning for it. And most of the reliance is on nonprofit organizations who are basically um, seeking so, to attra attract local people to pay for this. So how do, we, how do we move this forward, though, Ellie? I mean, it's all well and good to moan and groan, but what do we do to change it? I think we have to, to do the policy work that I, I just appreciate so much being a, a, a part of the conversation that, that Lee is starting to have with the theory of change. The, the, the way that the money in this country is distributed has to change. Mm -hmm. And I, I was actually reading a very interesting, um, it's not a podcast, it's a blog, but vast amounts of the wealth of this country is, is locked away because the tax system in this country encourages it. And it, what that means is that people who have some degree of wealth are making the decisions about where the money needs to go. And they are picking, the, they are making the policy for the country right. as, to, as to what gets funded. And that is completely contrary to a democratic system. Well, and, 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 and also what essentially I hear you saying is that the private sector is responsible for a larger and larger proportion of charitable support as compared to the government anymore. Exactly. And, and the yeah. problem with that is they may be picking good things, but they're picking it, picking it disorganized, in a disorganized fashion. Right, right, and, 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 and with no logic whatsoever. And, and no strategic thinking. Yep. Miss Lee, not, anything you want to add about third-party stuff? Well, I just want uh, to assure you, Anisio is very much on our radar. Um, the re, uh, reimbursement or Medicare coverage of low vision devices, technology, I think, I will predict that it will be the first national policy agenda item about which we get unanimity. We are all Right. Page with, and I think we're pretty close to getting something passed. Um, we need an elected body that will do that. Okay. Um, but um, we are we are really coalescing around that, and um, so that that could be the first step uh, to Medicare reimbursement for services. Now you you know better than just about anybody all the complications of that Anisio, mm -hmm. but. Even that world is changing, and so there are more opportunities for us today than there were a few years ago. Mike, great. Thank you so much. Mr. Rick? Nice your yep. Yeah, Beth. Hello, everybody. Hi, Beth. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I'll tie this in in just a second, but the Braille displays and note takers, sighted people can definitely see the pins when they raise up and lower. The reason I know that is because I've shown sighted people note takers and they could actually see the oh. dots there just as you could on paper. Now, yeah. what I wanted to, I was sitting here listening to that last question and it spurred something in my mind. What about, I don't know how this works, but I've been hearing a lot and especially now about St. Jude's cancer research centers. You know how they, how they have the, in fact, right now, a lot of, I'm assuming it's a lot, of um, 
businesses and and I'm I'm not sure who actually does it, but they they do fundraising. They 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 go on the air and they say, please give to right. St. Jude's. Right. What about something like that for these Braille displays for other things? How does well, that actually the, work? I mean, the the Braille displays we don't we don't need to fundraise for because that that process has started with NLS and 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 they they already have the money allocated from Congress for that or for the okay. for the pilots anyway. Right, right. But I mean, for even for other Braille displays that are not NLS ones. But I guess my my. Real point is, how does the St. Jude's model work, and could that be used for other things? Uh, Miss Miss Lee, do you want to comment? Well, um, it's possible, but there's, I don't know, it's a, it could be an administrative nightmare, too, because we're not one organization. Right. So um, I that's another thing I dream about, there being sort of a, a mothership for all of us, but it doesn't right. exist right now, and so... Maybe, but it would, it would still motherships. Happen. Motherships haven't tended to work in the blindness system anyway. <laughs> no, they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Rick, just an observation. AFB yes. does a tremendous amount of television advertising. They do. Yeah. They do. Or they're soliciting donations. I I don't know how effective that is, but it's. Uh, you know, you can't tune in CNN in the evening without seeing uh, at least one AFB ad. So yeah, and they're pretty nice. I like them. Yeah, they're nice ads. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so much of so much of what AS, AFB is doing is is focusing on on one issue now, and so many of the things that they were doing before have been um, given to others to do, um, which which has made for an interesting redistribution. Of, I don't want to say power, but certainly a redistribution of tasks within the blindness system. Oh yeah, the landscape has changed quite a bit in the last couple of years. APH has taken on a huge amount of work. Right, right, and so has Vision Serve Alliance, and 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 frankly, you know, ACB has taken some things from AFB as well. We're we are now doing their scholarships. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. so. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it certainly has been interesting. And they're raising all the money, so how does that work, Paul? <laughs> uh, I have no comment, Mr. Rick. <laughs> uh, so um, let's, let's talk about where we go uh, over, over the next five or ten years. We've, got, we've, we've talked a little about the potential of a new Braille display becoming available um, do we see, or do either of you see any any other real big changes occurring in the way that we serve blind people over the next five years? For instance, do we think that a lot of what we've developed in the pandemic in terms of approaches will actually survive once we have a vaccine? Yeah, I do. Yes, I do too. Yeah. Um, I think that already all of our organizations have, have learned how to do more with less in a good way. Um, we all have longed for for significant ways to extend our reach, and I, I think it's going to happen. Um, and we've been forced, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So we've been forced to embrace things that we wouldn't consider before. That's, that's one of the good things about these kinds of crises. And I, 
I, for one, am going to continue championing that because I, I think innovation is, you know, the train left the station a long time ago to think that we could ever meet the need with the traditional methods we employed. We've got to be doing things differently, and I think we will. Ellie, want to add anything? I agree with, with what Lee is saying completely. Um, and the nice thing to hear is, for example, to hear the uh, Division of Blind Services director saying um, the, the question of remote education has been answered. It's never right. going to go away. And, and, and I don't think, and two I don't years think ago we were, away. he doesn't. He doesn't yeah. want it to go away. He sees the, the, the positive outcomes that we're having. Um, there's no question that you can teach people that way of all ages. And, so and one of the issues that's come up in Florida a lot is that there is this huge difference uh, in terms of the curriculum that we can offer to rehab clients and the curriculum that we can offer to seniors. Um, and yet there is a feeling among many seniors that they have a need to learn, for instance, how to use iPhones and how to use computers. Um, but but there simply aren't enough resources or, or maybe enough time, you guys will have to tell me, um, for enabling seniors to, to learn these things. So are, are there some innovative things we can do to broaden the range of options that are available to seniors? Well, that's one of the um, topics that we want to discuss with the Aging Network when we have our, our summit. We want to know, you know, without moving people beyond their scope of practice, because certainly um, the certified professionals in our field do not want to lose um, the quality that is assured by having certified people doing the job or, or monitoring who's doing the job. And uh, the Aging Network also has uh, all kinds of constraints around the issue of scope of practice because they are licensed and they're, they're insured and they have all right. kinds of hoops to jump through for that. But where is there an intersection of these scope of practices, scopes of practice, so that some of these kind of instructions, I, the way I see it is where there are memoranda of understanding between nonprofits serving people who are blind and visually impaired and aging network organizations of all different kinds so that you do have that certified professional involved, both in assessment and in training and in making sure the training is done properly. But is there a way for us to start creating this and to create uh, training so that the frontline uh, person who's usually relatively low paid, but who's in the house has some awareness and may even, and this I, I'm always kind of a dreamer, may say to themselves, you know, I'm in a dead-end job. But there's scholarships out there. I could get an AA degree at my local community college, and then I could start learning this stuff that, that uh, people who are uh, learning to be uh, vision impairment specialists do. I could actually end up with a career where I could actually raise my family and get a class. And, and so make a lot more have, money. And yeah. make a lot more money. And the yeah. thing is, okay, now, now I'm really going to start shooting my mouth off here. But one of the problems we've always had is there's not enough people, not enough vision impairment specialists in this country being turned right. out by the universities. But the flip side of that is 
there's not enough money in the current nonprofit system that we have to hire them if we did produce them. Yep. But why can't an aging network organization add to their rehab team of OTs, speech therapists, and physical therapists, add a vision impairment specialist, whether it's an AT person, an O&M person, a VRT, a low vision therapist, add that in. And I know I don't see Anissio's hand going up in the air right now, but (laughs) yes, there are issues there. But these are major corporations, major corporations that could be doing so much for building a ladder of of self-improvement for these entry-level position people to move up into better positions in their companies and to really make that company more economically successful because if they don't have to provide as much service to somebody and they're still serving them, they're going to come out ahead. Lee, the inequity of senior services, what do we do about it? Well, all of what Ellie said, and all of us need to insist that there's more than $33 million available you know, through public funding. That's oh, right. Yeah. So, um, this is, I, you know, this is tit- Title VII funding from the federal government, yeah. and it's remained the same for the last, what, 14, 15 years? And, and it's called the, the older, older Blind fund and it's administered by rsa um 33 sorry. million dollars for the entire country it's ridiculous right. it is 10 20 maybe even 100 times that well and if we look at what's available for other disability groups right um at, both at the state level by the way and at the federal level yeah. um it, it is ridiculous how underserved people who are blind are in terms of the funding arena but yeah. but ne- nevertheless uh, talk to me more. I mean, clearly, clearly, it doesn't it doesn't look promising over the next two or three years to to go to Congress and say in, increase increase the older blind money. Why not? Um, uh, I I just I I think that uh, both at at the state level and at the federal level, once the pandemic is over, people are going to retrench fiscally a lot. Um, at all levels, and I think it's going to be harder and harder um, yeah, to I get agree. increases for discretionary programs like the older blind program. Yeah, then we have to stop calling it a discretionary program. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think I, that's I'm right. I'm very concerned, especially about state allocations, and I, I think those are going to dry up first. Right. But yeah, it does I, require a reframing, and it can't just right. be us that are asking us in this field. That's why we need these relationships with aging and allied health right? Um, to, to understand that this is, is significant and important and affects all of us. I get all of that, but, but I still want some response, if I could get it, in terms of what individual agencies can do, if anything, um, to broaden the range of services that they make available to seniors. Because right now, most have pretty limited programs maybe four to six weeks for seniors and and while they can come back for crafts or for monthly meetings or something like that after that perhaps mm-hmm. um the the amount of actual training that we're making available to seniors in most of our specialized agencies is pretty minimal oh i agree with that and that is part of the strategic plan that the the um coalition is putting together there's a focus on best practices service standards outcome measures 
and creating toolkits for organizations uh, to be able to use so that they can do more. But um, and a toolkits for alternative funding because we we're seeing in certain locales that there some folks have been very creative and found other opportunities. So, you know, are are some of these models that are happening in different parts of the country replicable? Mm-hmm. So, let's let's deal with another elephant: um, accreditation. Should specialized agencies for the blind continue to seek specialized accreditation through an organization like NAC? Yes. Yes. Well, it's not called NAC anymore. It's now the AER accreditation program. I'm glad it's not called NAC anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We nixed NAC. But um, in full disclosure, I happen to run that program right now. Okay. So, but why why should we you know a lot of organizations dropped out of accreditation and dropped out of what was then NAC um, maybe they could be encouraged to come back but why should they they should because they have a fundamental moral obligation to their customers to provide them some sense that what they're doing actually makes a difference and a person who, who loses their vision or who has a family member who has lost their vision, has no clue as to whether or not that pat on the head actually made any kind of difference. Right. Uh, The person may be glad to have that hug, but that is not what we are about. And sometimes we actually have to be um, um, not aggressive, but firm firm and assertive in, in confronting a person in terms of, their belief about themselves and what they can accomplish. And we need to hold out a higher level of accomplishment than that person may have thought for themselves. If they reject it, that's one thing, but they at least need to know that it exists. Mm -hmm. And when you are an accredited organization, I mean, what professional in this country is not accredited? How, how, How dare you not be accredited? Right. Right. Um, Lee, do you want to add? Well, and I I still think that having a specialized accreditation organization for us is appropriate because who else understands us? I'm sorry, they don't. Yes. Now, both of you were executive directors of organizations serving blind people. Did you find the self-study a worthwhile exercise in terms of understanding your agencies better? Oh, my gosh. I loved it. You know, Paul, it was one of the very first things we took on when I was the new executive director at Lighthouse Central Florida, had a different name then. And we, we were an organization, frankly, that was in trouble and needed some structure and some roadmap to kind of get our act together. And accreditation did that for us. It, it helped us um, confront our, our weaknesses and better understand what we needed to do to strengthen and every year, it's like an organization, or every five years, it was an organizational spring cleaning. And then I also served as a, an on-site peer reviewer and learned so much through those processes, seeing what right. other organizations were doing, working with other colleagues. I really loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, by the way, for, for, for full disclosure, 
Um, I served for a very long time on on the board of NAC, so I'm obviously um, also uh, a supporter of it. Um, so, uh, Miss Ellie, uh, d- did you find the the self study useful at, at when when you were head? Actually, I think it's the most useful about the whole the whole process because it it's a moment of organizational reflection mm-hmm. where, where your board of directors, your staff, your administration, your volunteers, mm-hmm. even your funders are in a conversation, an honest conversation, because you are not actually going to be penalized for not being perfect. Right. Yeah. Right. You do have to be kind of perfect at your management stuff. But when it comes to the way you provide the program, if there are certain areas where you need to improve, you're allowed time to make the improvement and you're even given support for making that improvement um right and, and, support. and if you're making changes that that really look promising you you can actually get some commendations especially if you can show that they work yeah. yes that's true too so so it's at the, the team building it's an organizational focusing moment to go through that self-study and then you have a team that comes in to do basically uh uh, secondary look, did you evaluate yourself correctly? You may have been too harsh on yourself in some areas, and you may mm-hmm. have been too lenient on yourself in some areas. And so this is like a little balancing or a, uh, a mirror being held up and saying, well, maybe you're not quite right about this particular way you see yourself. But in, in the end, you've also made a statement to the community that you're serious about your mission and about accomplishing it and about providing something that is essential to that community. Yeah. I also serve by the way, as a peer reviewer and I, and, and I, I would agree with both of you that, that I learned so much. Yeah. Um, not only about how to do things, but how not to do things. Yeah. Uh, That's right. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> the first the first peer review I, I went on was to an organization where we ended up not recommending accreditation at all. Really? <laughs> yeah. It took me years before I came upon a situation like that. Yeah, wow. it was, but, but it does happen, and it's important for people to know that. I, well, yeah. I, and in fact, it, it and should in fact, happen a little And bit. in fact, that's, that's, that's why I raised it, because there is, there is I think, this, this generalized notion that, that – uh, that the accreditation process is a bunch of old boys getting down and shaking right. hands and saying everything's fine. Um, but, but I, I can tell you that, that on this particular review, uh, this, this, this organization was recommended for no accreditation whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and deservedly so they didn't have the structure. They didn't have the personnel. Um, they didn't know what they were doing. Their management system was atrocious. I, I mean, it, it should have happened. Yeah. And it did. So the other other side of that, Paul, is that um, a savvy director will use the system to raise issues with the board and get support for making changes that need to be changed. Right. So, so it's um, it's a great tool. It's a great tool for everybody. Yep. So. There is a general notion that there are not enough specialized and especially trained and certified individuals in vision fields uh, to meet the needs of the agencies we currently have. First, do, do, do you both agree that that is the case? I yes. do. 
Yeah. So what do we do to begin to fix it? And uh, particularly, um, Ellie, you might want to talk a little bit about what we're doing in, in, in terms of accrediting programs of study and how that's impacted things. Well, um, the ER accreditation program actually has two um, branches, you could say. And one is it accredits higher education programs that prepare professionals, and the other is that it accredits agencies and specialized schools that hire the professionals and provide programs directly to people who are blind or visually impaired. So now, the higher education stuff is pretty new, is it not? That actually, AER has been doing that a lot longer than... Really? The, they've only had the, the former NAC for three right. years. Right, 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 right. But they, they were, at first they were just doing sort of like a um, seal of approval type thing for universities. But then um, more than three years ago, I'm not sure exactly how much longer ago, they started actually doing accreditation. Right. And they are now in the process of seeking recognition for their higher education accreditation program, which is basically an accreditation of an accreditation program. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, and and has, it, has it made a difference, do you think, in, in, in terms of the way that our, our programs operate? Yes, I, I think it has made a difference in the way our programs operate. If you're talking about direct service programs, and I think no, no, I'm talking about the the educational programs because, I, well, I think I think there has been a sense that some of us have felt that that those programs weren't really changing very much and weren't really adapting. They were using textbooks that were 20 and 25 years old. They weren't working to write new ones. Um, and, and so I guess my question is, has, has the accreditation process, process helped them to look at themselves and see where they needed to change? Well, I've only been doing this for four months, so it's a little hard for me to have a, a full perspective on the higher education part because I, I never was aware of that really before, of the details mm -hmm. of it. However... Um, a number of the organizations that I've already started to look at did get conditional um, accreditations, mm -hmm. which means that they have a year to fix something that wasn't quite right. And I see that the um, teams, the panels that are put together to review the universities are very rigorous. Yep. And um, they push back a lot. And I think that's exciting. I, I think that is really I was really so hopeful. happy to see that. I was yeah. so happy to see that. So what, what do we do about getting more specialized folks trained? I mean, programs are, are – we're, we're not growing in terms of the number of programs, are we? I mean, some of them are actually closing down. Actually, there's or, some or, new ones. There's new ones. Are there? That, That's that a good formed. thing. Kentucky's added one, There's a, and there's two or three other programs that have been added recently. I don't so, think I knew that. Yeah, I didn't know it either, but now I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, don't, and don't forget that TVI programs are also reviewed by the, the Higher Education Accreditation Commission of, of um, AER, which TVIs are not certified by ACVREP because they're state 
the states control the education system. Right. So I think it's very nice to know that the DVI programs are also being... I think that's extremely helpful. Um, Ms. Lee, any thoughts on, on certification and where we go? Well, um, I did my part. I recruited one of my very own children to be a TVI on him. <laughs> you, know, you did good. <laughs> not everybody is not not everybody has a, a child to offer to the field. So while it's amazing I, how many people manage to do it. <laughs> yeah. So um, while I think that we still want to encourage this traditional route, uh, and in fact. Um, I, I see, I envision VisionServe Alliance uh, playing a role in coordinating all the opportunities for uh, leadership, professional leadership development in our field to attract more people, especially people of color and people who are blind and visually impaired mm -hmm. themselves into our field. Because I get, I'm constantly asked by our member organizations, I need employees. Who do you have? Who do you know? So I think it's part of our wheelhouse, and, and I don't want to abandon those traditional um, opportunities. But I also think we need to be looking at associate degree programs and bachelor right. degree programs and expanding the opportunity to enter this field wherever you are in, in a much easier way. We don't, frankly, don't have the luxury of turning away anybody who's interested in working in this field. You know, uh, Miami-Dade, when I worked there, actually had a, a uh, an orientation mobility tech program that Ellie and I worked on for a while. Yeah. Um, where where we actually um, we we actually gave certificates away. It wasn't even at the level of an AA program, but what it did was it created beginnings for a lot of people right. and and took a lot of pressure. Um, off of the certified orientation mobility instructors, so that these these kind of mobility techs could um, um, could do some of the very basic stuff because we were prepared to certify that they were good enough to do that. Yep. Yeah, I think part of the solution is um, removing some of the barriers to entry to our field, and and there's a lot of discussion about that now. So I, I believe we're going to do it. So. Another area um, that is relatively recent, and I guess I'm going to start with Ellie with this one because it's sort of in your bailiwick now. Um, we have recently introduced um, a, a certification, or relatively recently, a certification for assistive technology. Um, how well does that seem to be working, Ellie? Do we know? Well, we do know, actually. Um, we know that a lot of people have pursued it already. We know that we have a very strong uh, test that uh, was developed by ACVREP um, in conjunction with subject matter experts from around the country. Tell, tell, tell us what ACVREP stands for, just in case folks don't know. Right. Okay. ACVREP stands, it's for the certifying body of orientation mobility specialists, Vision rehabilitation therapists, low vision therapists, and um, computer access technology instructional specialists, CADIS. Mm -hmm. So it's called ACVREP, which stands for the Academy for Certification of Vision and Rehabilitation and Education Professionals. 
Excellent. And so I, I interrupted the answer to the question. So, yes, we do know that CADIS is working, that the assistive technology um, uh, designation is working, and we have a lot of people who have applied for it already. People are passing the test, and uh, the nice thing about that one is that it, it, it's actually the first one of the certifi- certifications that has admitted people who don't have a university degree, mm-hmm. because assistive technology is one of those things where... People learned it in their garage. Yep. You know, and they learned they they. There's a lot of self teaching that has gone on, and in fact, people who were self taught had to develop the test. Now, yep. eventually, it's going to mature into being something where you do have to have more um, formal education to be eligible for it. But at this point, I mean, for all of these brilliant people who've put stuff together over the years, all of them are eligible to take this test and to have this designation after their name, which is pretty nice. So, Lee, is there a a large enough pool of these folks yet for for agencies to make it pretty much a requirement that that the certification is is held? Yeah, I I think they still need to do that, but there are organizations that have been looking for professionals for a long time. And, and, you know, especially if you're in a a rural area, um, it's it's very difficult to attract. And and frankly, I don't, I still think that the majority of our organizations don't pay well enough. And, you know, it's tough because they're struggling financially, but um, I think we need to be paying these people in general 10, 20%, at least more, than we do, and offering yep. perks like, yeah, we'll pay for your certification, we'll pay for your continuing ed, we want you to stay uh, current, and um, that's not happening everywhere. Yep. So one of the questions that, that at least has been out there for me, and, 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 and I'll, I'll start with Lee in terms of asking you this question, Lee, do you think that for the most part blind people are attracted to our field or, or do you think they're not? And do you have a reason for your opinion? Um, you know, I haven't really uh, done a statistical analysis on it, Paul. Um, what I, but it's interesting right now because there's a pretty vibrant discussion um, that I think originated out of our fall conference on um, governance parity and equity that, Um, we have, we organizations in this field serving people who are blind and have low vision have a significant number of leaders, you know, in in terms of their boards and also management who are also blind and have low vision. Um, And I don't think there's enough people who are blind and have low vision with that experience and desire to serve in those capacities as we would need to, to really um, significantly boost that. I I still think that that's a goal and something we need to work towards, but there's some awfully amazing accomplished people with blindness and low vision that don't want to work in our field and why should they? Right, and, and, and I guess I'm I, I'm trying to figure out why that is, and 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 it, it 
you know, I worked. Thing, it doesn't I, very well. <laughs> well, I think that's, I think that's part of it, but I mean, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's all of it. No, I mean, um, it's just different strokes for different folks. I, it, it's yeah. having, um, being a manager of a, a community-based or national nonprofit organization is just one kind of job. There's so many others. Um, yes. So I, I want to help to provide opportunities for people who are blind and visually impaired interested in this. Let's make sure there's no barriers keeping them from doing that. Right. But, and, um, and that's, that's worth putting out there. I think Yeah. Um, that, that, and, and that they're, they're, that most agencies really welcome Absolutely. blind people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And LA- in fact, that's another call that I get from our agency leaders is, yeah. I, we need more managers who are blind and visually impaired. Who do you right. know? And it's, and, it's, and, and it's interesting that you say managers rather than rather than simply peons. Oh, um, yeah. No, I'm, I'm yeah. talking about supervisors, managers, directors. Right. Ellie, any thoughts on this one? Well, I, I don't know if I have much to add. I think we covered it extremely well. I, I, I yep. just can see how you could run an organization without having people who are blind and visually impaired in it. Because, I mean, who, who better is a, is a role model for, for the people who come in? Who better is, a, is the, the first person to meet a person coming in to say, look, it's everything that we say is possible is possible. I'm doing it. Right. I can do it too. Right. I, who better I, I, to kick somebody in the butt? Yeah, well, I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's absolutely correct. So if we look at, uh, again, uh, the future over the next, say, two to five years, uh, one of the things that you've worked on, Lee, is, is a new management approach that, in fact, ACB is using. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about what that approach is and, and why you think it has merits for organizations like the ones that, uh, that you guys run? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. So this system is called Traction or EOS. EOS stands for Entrepreneurial Operating System. Every organization, whether they know it or not, is using at least one operating system. It's, it's the nuts and bolts of your structure. Unfortunately, a lot of nonprofits are pretty lackadaisical or casual about selecting and employing an operating system. And and so consequently, you have multiple ways of doing things and operating systems under one one organizational roof. And um, that does not lend to sustainability. So um, when I was at Lighthouse Central Florida, you know, when, when I started there 20, 25 years ago, we were a very small organization. Our operating, our annual operating expenses were less than a million dollars. We had about 25 staff members and almost all of them were part-time. And we only served about a hundred people a year. Um, And we were, we were chasing our tails and we didn't know which way to go. So the first thing we did, as we talked about earlier, we went through accreditation to try to create structure. And over the years, by hook or by crook, by mostly the talents of 
the individual employees we had. Um, we, we figured out how to grow, and we got to the point where we wanted to establish that subsidiary corporation, Lighthouse Works, um, so that we could employ people and generate earned revenue um, as well, a double bottom line. And that was an incredibly difficult task, but we did it. We stood it up, and then we knew we needed to grow it, and we kind of felt like we'd hit the ceiling organizationally. You know what I mean? We, we, we knew enough that what got us to that point was not going to get us to the next one. And we started looking for some management systems, and one of my staff brought this book to our attention called Traction by Gino Wickman. Um, her husband's company, a for-profit company, was implementing this as their operating system, and, and he frankly didn't care for it and was commiserating with her. And she said, you know what, I'll read the book so I can give you moral support. She loved it, and she brought it back to our attention and said, I think this is maybe what we're looking for. All the leadership team read the book. We did like it, and we decided to implement it. Um, it was. It, it is a long process to implementation. It's two years, and what it is, it it provides structure, um, and a and a way of thinking about your organization in an ongoing way, to um, get a grip on your your business, and gain traction instead of constantly scratching your head being caught up in the, the crisis of the day, because we deal with these crises all the time. How do you establish what's important to your organization, have this clear vision that the entire organization understands, is focused on, so that you're all rowing in the same direction and, and can make that progress and accomplish what you want? That's what Traction EOS is. It's a series of simple tools that this author has pulled together. Pulled, by the way, from a lot of management books that people have already read. We had read many of them, like From Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yep. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Um, there's quite, I, I think m many of the listeners would recognize a lot of the management principles, but he pulls it all together into a fairly straightforward recipe and, um, and I loved it so much implementing at Lighthouse that I decided that I wanted to help other organizations do that and became a certified implementer for EOS and now offer that service for a fee um, only to our member organizations. And I'm just thrilled to be working with ACB. They, they took it on, um, started about 120 days ago. And um, it, it's looking pretty good. And it has the power um, to transform an organization because it gives you control as the leadership team. You, um, you, can, you decide where you're going. You're not just <clears throat> re reacting to all the things that are thrown at you. You, you choose your destiny. Yeah, there's, things are going to change. You have to be flexible. But it, it teaches you those tools so that you can move forward. And I think the most important thing about Traction EOS is it's a system that will outlive, if done well, will outlive all of the leaders conceivably on the team at some point, but it will assure that no matter who's running the organization, it's going to be done well and, and 
be able to fulfill your mission. And, and the, the leadership actually has to evaluate its own performance as well as part of the system, do they not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Constantly, there's a, you have a scorecard, you establish what your, your goals are. Um, every 90 days, you're, you are establishing a new set of what we call rocks. You work mm-hmm. towards that. And um, you evaluate, did we accomplish those or not? Now, what's the most important things that we have to accomplish the next 90 days? All towards a one-year plan, a three-year picture, and, a, and five-year big, hairy, audacious goals. Excellent. It, it actually does sound like a, I, I, I've read probably the first third of the book now, and I've been pretty impressed. Um, so, Miss Ellie, in Florida, um, we had what we thought was a pretty good thing called the Vision Caucus. Tell folks what that was and, and, and maybe talk a little bit about what happened to it. Yes. Okay. Um, approximately 12 or 13 years ago, um, we had at that time Florida Agency Serving the Blind had a a lobbyist who worked for us. And he actually sort of functioned as our executive director because we really didn't have an executive director in those days. We we did, but we we didn't. And um, he, he basically laid out a strategy for us. And he said, first, you need to find who are your um, your key supporters in the legislature. And he identified a couple of people, one in the Senate, one in the House. And he said, let's approach them to establish a vision caucus. There are other caucuses in the legislature. This is a, a, an organizing tool that the legislature does like to use. And they invite people who, who care about your issue to be on the caucus. So we did that. We established a vision caucus, and the, the first leader of it was a guy at that time was Representative Dennis Baxley. He is now Senator Dennis Baxley. And when he termed out different times, other people would take the role. And so he would be our champion for our requests for funding and any other legislation that we saw coming on the horizon that we thought was either good or not good for um, people who are blind or visually impaired. And um, the Vision Caucus became the focus of our summits. And then the next thing that uh, the lobbyists came up with, he said, well, you know, you need to have another source of revenue for all of your organizations. And we, um, thanks to Lee Nasahi, actually, we um, had the money made available through her, her, her uh, Lighthouse Central Florida, to um, sp- to spend in order to develop a license plate, a, a vanity license plate, so to speak, or a specialty license plate, really, for the state of Florida, so that when we sold the plate, $25 would come to whatever agency served the county where the license plate was purchased. And to this day, we have that license plate. And then later on, we added in um, a checkoff to provide certain money for blind babies and a checkoff to provide additional money for services for older blind. But the, the, over time, uh, this caucus kind of got stale. And the way that the legislature started doing its business 
didn't lend itself to right. our, having our summits. And so that's why at this point, we don't really have a vision summit that's really working for us. Well, and, and, and really the, 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 the vision caucus is there, I guess, in name, but, it, but it's not really functioning as well as it has. Right, and and part of that's because of the original champions either aren't in the legislature anymore, or for example, uh, Senator Baxley has an entirely different agenda that he has, which right. is quite contrary to our agenda. Even though he he does have a son who who is visually impaired, right? So you know, you'd think he'd still have. Uh, it's just not there anymore. It, but but the idea of the Vision Caucus was a good one. Yeah, um, and, and, it, and it did work for us. And, for and, and, and and there is actually, I guess, a vision caucus in Congress, is there not, Lee? Mm-hmm. There is. There is actually a vision caucus. And, and, and the funny thing about that vision caucus, despite the fact that Florida is one of the states that has the largest populations of old of older blind, in particular with blind people, we'll just say, yeah. we don't have as many members on that caucus as people from, I think it's Indiana, has the most members in Ohio, right. has the members. And that those people don't have as many blind people as we do. So there's there's work to be done there as well. There is work to be done. It is kind of, it's kind of dormant right now too. Um, Paul, like the Florida one, has it, it does right. exist. And just like ASB was the facilitator of the Florida Vision Caucus, Prevent Blindness is the facilitator, if you will, of right. the Congressional Vision Caucus. And um, and they're one of our members and and part of our both public policy committee and the national policy collaborative, and um, and and we're working together to revive that congressional vision caucus and try to make it more meaningful and, and focused and active. It, it all comes down to the people who are leading it and do they have a passion for this or not? You know, I can't I can't claim that it's absolutely and directly. Um, uh, the reason why something happened this year that I'm going to talk about in a second, but a bunch of us went up to Tallahassee a couple of years ago to meet with legislators during committee meeting week. And we, we didn't ask them for money, but what we did do was to talk to them about the growing problem of the senior blind program. You know, we, we, we had statistics. We talked about what was coming. We, we made it pretty clear that we're, we're not asking you for something now, but boy, down the road, guys, you're going to have to do something. Now, the, the reality is that while they cut other programs um, in the Division of Blind Services, they actually allocated an additional $300,000 in Florida for, the senior, for senior blind dollars. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, but the, the, I guess the point I'm making is I think, I think we, conti- we, we continually have to find ways, if the Vision Caucus isn't working anymore, to find some other ways of communicating with our, with our legislators if we're going to be effective at, at getting the kind of change. Because I, I, don't think, I don't think the private sector is going to save us. I think public dollars need to. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And, and part of the problem with, with the way the, the legislature is working right now is we were delighted to have that extra $300,000 for the older blind. But the Division of Blind Services continues to struggle with all of these decisions that the legislature makes because all they do is they move the money around like a shell game. Right. And every time they do that, they impact 
the division's capacity to bring down federal dollars. That's correct. And we have have to solve that problem. We do. Uh, Again, I, I, I think it is atrocious that the way that we do the federal allocations um, puts our programs at risk if they try to do better in other ways. Yeah. Um, um, and, and it is really a shame. All right. We have about six minutes left. Uh, are there some final things that you would like to add, Miss Ellie, before we say goodbye? Maybe give some contact information for FASV and, and perhaps for yourself if you're minded. Well, first of all, I, I would really like to thank you, Paul and Tariq, for inviting Lee and me tonight, because one of the things that I think Florida Agency Serving the Blind really wants to do is to have an ongoing conversation, a strategic conversation, uh, a meaningful dialogue with ACB and with NFB. Mm-hmm. And in Florida, we have very good relationships among the three groups, I think, Yes, and, and there are even other groups that we could be including that we haven't been as successful at including. Yes, but uh, I think together we're stronger, and um, we also are. Uh, it's a, it's. You know, you you want to be as honest as you can be about what you're doing, and um, I think including ACB in our deliberations and including ACB in our thought process makes us more honest because the people who are living the the life of a person who has a visual impairment are, have a voice of authority that we have to, to include in everything that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so I I really appreciate being on the phone tonight. And I hope that, uh, the people who listened or who end up listening to the recording at some other time uh, will reach out to Florida Agency Serving the Blind uh, with, with your thoughts about things or with your, with your um, reactions to things. And uh, the way to do that is, uh, first of all, you can call Florida Agency Serving the Blind, and the phone number is 305-898-2636. And I'll be the person answering the phone. You can email uh, e dupre e d u p r e at beyondvisionloss.org, or you can just go to our website, which is beyondvisionloss.org, and you know poke around in there and find a place that you can put in your comment, which there is a place to do that, which um, is on the website, and. Um, and give us your input, and it'll show up in our web in our mailbox. Miss Lee. So um, I would like to encourage everyone who listens to also visit our website, which is www.visionservealliance.org. Uh, we are, are historically been known for our organizational members. But we do offer individual associate members membership to advocates, retirees, um, people who are, are not working for an organization that belongs to us. I will and have I, to join. Yeah, I wish you would. It, I will. Um, we have a virtual conference coming up November 1st through the 5th. And it's funny you just said what you did, Ellie, because our 
our uh, tagline for this conference is still stronger together. Mm. And uh, not, you don't have to be a member to attend the conference. There, there is a fee to attend. Um, but I, I'd like to say if you're an individual not working for a, a vision server Alliance member organization and you want to attend and need help with that, please reach out and let me know. My email address is my my name, L-E-E, and my last initial, N, at visionservealliance.org. And, uh, you know, we hope to ha have a lot of people participate in that. Um, there's, there's going to be lots of opportunities for you to serve in a volunteer capacity with us, especially the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition initiatives that we launch next year. So please stay tuned and let us know what we can do better, differently, in addition to what we're already about. And tell us about your podcast once more. Voice, the Voices of Vision Leaders podcast. So um, you can get that through, is it the Apple Store? Mm -hmm. I, don't ask me. I'm, I'm yeah, and iTunes, and it, iTunes, it's available, I think, <laughs> every everywhere where people get but their it, podcasts. Also, if you go on the website, it, there's uh, information about it on there, too. <laughs> that is excellent. So I would like to thank both of you for making this a very enjoyable two hours. I think we've covered lots of exciting topics, and I think we've given people loads of things to think about. Next week on Tuesday Topics, we're going to the other end of the spectrum. We're going to, uh, though I haven't firmed this up completely, we're going to hopefully have um, representatives from ACB students and from an organization specifically aiming to attract younger members, the Next Gen Special Interest Affiliates. Great. So I am looking forward to seeing everybody here next week on Tuesday Topics. And I encourage everyone to suggest ideas to me. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can get me at edwards.paul955 at gmail.com. That's edwards.paul955 at gmail.com. And all of my access information is at the bottom of each of my emails, very boringly. So if there's other ways you'd like to get hold of me, uh, people are annoyed that I put all of my phone numbers and my email and the whole nine yards at the bottom so people don't have to look around for it. Everyone, the future of services to people who are blind depends mostly on the quality of people who deliver those services. We've had an opportunity to talk to bunches of people tonight who are interested in making things better. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, the vision we have is much better than the eyesight we don't have. Bye. Good night. <laughs>